Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and I'm so happy to be back with a brand new episode. I hope you all enjoyed your start to summer while Food Network Obsessed was on a small break. But now we are back with brand new episodes and guests, and I am so excited to bring you today's conversation. He is a food legend and regarded as one of the most knowledgeable personalities in the food world. He's on the pod today talking about why we gather around the table and how growing up in New York City with a lot of freedom really shaped his culinary perspective. He is an Emmy Award winning and four time James Beard Award winning TV personality, chef and writer. And he's the host of Magnolia Network's Family Dinner. It's Andrew Zimmern. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Uh, You and I met while co-hosting an episode of Beat Bobby Flay that is yet to air, but... I have been a fan for quite some time. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to wish you an early happy birthday. We are recording this before your birthday, July 4th. You're turning 61. How do you feel about birthdays in general? Love them. (laughs) Are you a birthday week, birthday month guy or? I'm a birthday week person because the older you get, there's the family and then a dinner out with friends and then we'll have some people over to the house. So it winds up being bigger than I would like Mm -hmm. uh, just from a production politeness family size issue. And I don't have the ego about it that says I have to have a a week devoted to me. It's just the way it it, it goes (laughs) down. July 4th, I'm convinced, not just because it's my birthday. It's a great birthday to have because everyone is around. Yes. (laughs) And people are having like barbecue. Like, so there's just a lot of collegial awareness and people are dying to go do something and everything is closed and people have the day off and and there's fireworks (laughs) fireworks and it's not a gift giving thing yeah right it's not christmas that's true right so it's uh it's a great birthday to have I, i do firmly believe age is a number i guess i'm blessed that when I tell people my age, they're they're generally surprised. I was the uh, well, thank you. It's very <laughs> kind. So it's what my number is. Uh, I'm a a big believer of continuing to do and do and do and do in life. So I'm just gonna keep on doing. Well, that said, how do you how do you feel like this next decade is going to be defined? My best ever. <laughs> I love that. And I don't say that in sort of a trite greeting card way or in that traditional sort of, hey, we have to psych ourselves up to survive in in the world today. The world is very tough today. Mm. It's very divisive. It's changing very, very quickly, especially for those of us in the world of entertainment and media. That's one of the silos that is changing the fastest. Although as someone who works on a lot of different projects Every other industry out there is changing just as fast as, as ours, mm-hmm. which is which is scary. I think that this decade, well, it's scary for some people. I think this decade is a big hinge event, a decade-long hinge event for, for planet Earth. There are some existential elements to it, like climate crisis, but, you know, every industry is changing. I just gave a talk to the Society for Corporate Governance, and they had lawyers who deal with corporate governance from 
every big corporation in America was attending. Mm -hmm. It was 500 companies represented uh, across the, I mean, from construction companies to media companies, right? And everything in between. And every single lawyer, uh, corporate governance officer and lawyer that I spoke to said the same thing. Everything in our industry is changing. And it made me realize that that's that's one of the things contributing to sort of like the general angst, ennui, and free-floating anxiety that society feels at large. So why am I so bullish about the decade ahead? I'm neither glass half full or half empty. I'm a, I, I'm a strong believer that the glass is refillable. Mm. And I believe in, in human beings to change things. I believe in the youngest. What is the name of the youngest generation uh, that, or is it Gen Z? I think we're at the, Gen Z now. I don't, we're running out okay. of letters. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so uh, I believe in that generation and the one behind it. My my son's generation, I guess, would be sub Gen Z. Uh, <laughs> and 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 I just I think the capacity for humankind to solve problems is undervalued and understated. We have always found a way to solve our problems. And so I have a tremendous amount of hope. For myself personally, I've spent decades trying to create businesses, nonprofits, develop a platform that allows me to solve problems in areas of life that I believe I can contribute to. And I got there at age 60. And so now that the, the next decade is enjoying, you know, I'll give you an example. My production company started out just producing stuff for me for Travel Channel, right? Mm -hmm. Well, now we we have seven series in production. I'm in one of them, wow. right? So that's the kind of growth you look forward when you talk about lifting other people up, when we talk about old white men stepping aside. I mean, I'll just name it. That's the the sort of like when someone says, what are you doing to 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 do your part for that? It's like, by lifting up other people. You know, we we just completed a series with a Hmong chef named Yia Vang, who uh, is, uh, the Hmong are a, a, an, an ethnic tribal people from Southeastern Asia, mountainous people. They've never had their own country. And the largest number of Hmong came to Minnesota in the 70s. And uh, they're very, 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 proud people with incredible food. And we did this amazing series with Yia. And I'm so excited to be able to elevate Hmong. The statement that it makes is that their cuisine is as valid as any others, right? And, and if you extend the idea of food to people, their people are as valid. That's, that is the essence of what social justice and equity is all about. I'm an ambassador for the United Nations World Food Program and a couple other big uh, independent international rescue committee that Einstein founded in 1939. I do a lot of work with Tony Miliband in that group. So I'm finally getting uh, back over to Africa and into some places that are experiencing crisis and conflict and being able to tell stories over there to help move the needle to help that part of the world. So it's that's sort of like what's ahead, mm -hmm. expanding our little hospitality company, which is growing I'm excited. I just got two dogs. They're they're a year and a half and six months old. So, <laughs> so I, I get to do the next decade with them. Yeah. My kid 
is 17 and a half. So when I think of the next decade, I could start crying if I think about what he's going to look like at 27. Mm. When when we, when you remind me at some party, you nudge me and say, you remember 10 years ago when I said, what's your next decade going to look like? <laughs> How'd it turn out? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really on, on the selfish side in terms of my own life. I'm really looking forward to it. I love that. I love, you know, like you said, you know, change is coming. It, it's here um, and it can be really scary. But I think if you embrace it, you know, that that can be really exciting. And you can hear the excitement in your voice uh, about what's uh, what's to come over the next 10 years. I hope everyone circled what you just said, because that to me is one of the your your suggestion for listeners to embrace change is something that in my experience is the only change is going to happen. It is inevitable. Everything changes. Therefore, as human beings, the only thing we can control is our is our thoughts and attitudes about something. Mm -hmm. That's it. (laughs) Seriously, I mean, if anyone thinks about it, that is the only thing that we have control over. It's so true. You can you can want to have a BLT sandwich all you want for lunch, (laughs) but you you know, stuff happens and the restaurant's out of bacon. You can't find a ripe tomato. No one's got toast. I mean, whatever your issue is, there's a chance it may not happen. But your thoughts and attitudes are, are, are the things that you can control. And uh, I, I'm I love hearing someone else say that because I believe it is a it is a very noble truth. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that's the only way to continue to evolve and, and, and move along in this life. And and I want to talk about the life you've lived, too, because that is uh, wildly interesting and vast. Uh, there's this quote from Eater about you that says, Zimmern knows more about the foods of the world and the history of modern gastronomy than anyone else in our solar system. He is a walking, talking food encyclopedia and a true omnivore. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that statement? No. <laughs> Why? It's extremely flattering. I think I am one of the people who is that. And, and I think that's really important. None of us have that level of terminal uniqueness. Mm. I've been so lucky and so blessed in my life that the series of jobs, events, opportunities have added up to my having a front row seat to more flavors, more techniques, more wisdom, more learning, but I could have ignored all that. I'm a vacuum of learning. I I am I am so insanely curious about any new thing that I see. It, it's dangerous. You know, our board here at my office is like every week they tell me stop doing new stuff. And I was like, well, that's how I learn. <laughs> that's what I'm excited about. That's what makes me happy. And so while it's very flattering and there is a lot of truth to it, there are other people that I've met who are right up there. Mm. That that being said, when I talk to them, they've they've not visited 177 countries. They've Ooh. not eaten with 26 of the now, I think, 42 or 44 protected first peoples of the world, folks that you can't go in and spend time with unless you do it through the government and are approved by uh, not only the tribal elders, whatever governance system they have, but by the conservation officers assigned to keep those peoples safe and living there in an ancient pathway. 
I've had the opportunity to do that. I think as the world has been closing down around us and become more divisive, I think it's harder and harder to do it. Uh, I'm, you know, uh, the the Sukh at Aleppo in Syria was written about in the Bible, and in the Bible it calls it the oldest market, wow. and the basically the place where everyone should shop. <laughs> if there was a if there was a Time Out magazine around it, 100 BC. It would recommend the Sukh at Aleppo as the place to get all of your your raisins, wine, and and olives, and cheese, and and handicrafts and clothes. And it is in every ancient text they mention. It's the only market that's in all of them. Uh, it's been bombed into rubble. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, not only. Did I spend three days eating and learning and talking to people who are there? Um, I still have honey and um, tahina wow. from that market, and I it, it, it's dried and crusty in the bottom <laughs> of a of a jar, both. But I refuse to use the last spoonful. I still have the jar it, be, because of what it represents. It's it's the last of its kind. Mm. And I find those sorts of things fascinating. So have I had those experiences that other people do not have? Sure. Um, I, I also tend to, uh, I, I can't tell you what um, a colleague said to me yesterday morning on a given topic. I tend to dispose of that information really quickly. <laughs> um, but I can tell you everything about what I ate in the market mm the Sook in Aleppo. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, Obama was president when Assad started bombing his own country and there was essentially civil war erupted um, that resulted in the destruction of this incredible, incredible market. Um, I remember everything that I ate there and in what order. I mean, that sort of creepy, weird <laughs> sort of way that uh, is is quite fascinating. And I've had a lot of young cooks. I, I was in, I, I was on an island in Italy and they were harvesting these very, very thin razor clams, much different than any other. And they were so thin, you couldn't do what you do with like a Pacific razor clam and run your thumb or a knife along the inside of the shell to separate it. And what the and and the work of cleaning the razor clams was left to the, the grandmothers in the village, and they would take a pile of sea salt and put it in. They would crisscross their legs, you know, crisscross applesauce, mm -hmm. and they would they 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 the fabric of their dress would create this like bowl between their knees, and they put a half cup of salt there, and they would dip the tip of the razor clam into the salt, the the animal would open up its shell wide and then they would run their fingernail down and take the meat out and discard the shell, losing none of the liquid inside. Wow. And, and so that's how I clean razor clams ever since because it just makes the most sense. So I'm at a food festival about six years ago with, with some really amazing chefs and we're all trying to help someone clean razor clams for this one dish that they were doing a, uh, an aguachile or a ceviche with it. And, uh, they were all, it was taking them forever. And I just walked over and I dumped a pile of salts on the ground and I touched the tip to it. The thing opens up and I ran my thumb down and I said, that's how you clean a razor clam. And they just looked at me like <laughs> I had just like, you know, dropped a new Beyonce album on them. They were like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, 
Well, I learned that from someone. I mean, it's like that's how that's how you we pass learn along. things. Yeah. yeah, we learn things that way, you know. And uh, I've just been in a lot of places. I'm very, very lucky. Uh, you talk about this this desire to learn new things constantly. Let's talk about where that came from, because you grew up in New York City as the child of two creatives. You describe yourself as the ultimate latchkey kid. But I'm curious, how did that upbringing um, really initiate this desire to explore and experiment the way that you do? Uh, the the greatest human motivator of all, fear. <laughs> and human beings don't change when you're fat, dumb, and happy. I've spent a lot of years fat, dumb, and happy, so I've analyzed this. <laughs> Scientific I, I evidence. Learn, well, I don't learn a lot when things are going well. You know, if you make blueberry muffins out of, you know, an Ina Garten cookbook and they turn out perfectly, you're like, well, I got that nailed <laughs> onward. You know, if you make a mistake, you learn something. Right. My upbringing was filled with a, a lot of fear, a, a lot of happy times, but a lot of fear, a lot of childhood trauma, a lot of of really scary stuff that motivated me in some very unhealthy ways and put me at a very young age into a world of addiction and alcoholism that got worse and worse and worse as I got older, uh, but also really increased the belief system in my head that I had to provide for myself anything that I that I might need or might want. And there's a difference between needs and wants, right? Mm -hmm. I want pizza for dinner. <laughs> I mean, I get it and I'll be fine as long as I eat. I need to eat something tonight, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to I had to learn a lot. And I had I had so many wonderful role models and so many incredible people in my life that somehow broke through my armor enough to 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 keep me learning and keep me growing. Uh, but it really was fear. And, and not that fear of missing out that that so many people talk about these days, but just fear that I wouldn't know how to handle something later on if I didn't find out myself. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's been a very positive, when channeled the right way, it's been a positive force in my life. It's taken me, let's just say from age 20, uh, I sobered up at 30, First 10 years I was sober, I was still an absolute wreck. So it's really been the last 20 years that the healthy chickens have come home to roost. <laughs> and I'm actually, you know, I still make mistakes. I still do the, I mean, all human beings sure. do. I, you know, I, I make relationship mistakes, work mistakes, you know, crossword puzzle mistakes, <laughs> you know, cooking mistakes. I mean, we, we, we're human beings. We make mistakes all the time. But I'm no longer transmitting the trauma of my youth, and I am not always living in fear. So it's a lot of huge growth. That gives you a tremendous amount of freedom as well. But yeah, I had, a, I, you know, my, both my parents loved to eat and travel, I mean, obsessively. So by the time I was 13, 14 years old, I'd been around the world four or five times with my dad. Mm. My dad was a very intimate friend of, of James Beard, Craig Claiborne, the, the whole West Village gay food mafia was, was where I, I grew up in a La Caja Fole family. My dad, who was a, uh, a Navy veteran, World War II, 
you know, three years in the South Pacific, seen horrific action, came back, a, you know, a, 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 a leader at University of Wisconsin at Madison, where he went to school, helped build a giant sized company in New York and was very successful by anyone's standards, was also a very closeted gay man until 1966 when he came out to certain members of his family. My mother always knew. Mm. She just loved him so much and he wanted a child. So they married and had me. And then my father met the love of his life, who he was in a relationship with from 1966 till 2017 when they both passed away. Finally, in the last years of their life, being able to uh, to marry legally in the state of Maine where they had moved. But to have two dads who nurtured me and loved me in a very, very educational, gracious, loving, kind, empathetic way, and a mother who wrote books about shells and and throughout the Caribbean and Latin America allowed me to see culture in the world in a much, much different way than most young people do. I had to spend two weeks out of the month with my dad, right? Your parents are separating mm -hmm. and you're back and forth. And so if my father had to go to Italy for four days on business, I went with him. Wow, and as amazing. a young kid, to do that and experience the things I experienced with him on the road, sort of, I'm a pale version of my dad. <laughs> my dad was bigger, smarter, funnier, more outgoing, better traveled, extremely well-spoken, Whenever I'm having this conversation about him, he makes he makes me smile. And I, Jamie, you would have loved my dad. Knowing you, you know, I I, I don't know you well, but I know you well enough mm -hmm. that you know your humanity comes screaming across uh, to everyone who meets you. And I have a couple of pictures of my dad in in my office. And you would have loved. Everyone loved my father. Mm -hmm. He was just a beloved, beautiful human being. And and I was lucky. Yeah. So yeah, good good genes, good family in the right position. At the same time, you know, kids aren't uh, born with a uh, an instruction manual. So you know, my father, greatest generation, his 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 way of dealing with feelings, if he felt something, was to recognize it put it in an aluminum foil ball metaphorically and shove it as far down into his feelings hole <laughs> as he could, never letting it see the light of day. Um, and that's how he survived. That's how he survived the trauma of being a young gay man growing up in the 20s and 30s in New York. It's how he survived in the South Pacific. It's how he survived heavily closeted in the business community of New York in the 50s, which was not the business community of New York in the 70s, which was more open and forgiving. But, you know, my dad's lived through Stonewall and all the other events of the 60s and into the 70s and 80s and saw 80% of their friends die of AIDS and all of that stuff. And so it's a, you know, his life was not easy either. Mm -hmm. And he dealt with it one way that was like not great for a young kid. Yeah. Right. So, but if you're aware and you're open and as you said, you pay attention to change. I think I'm I'm big on talking to my kid about feelings. He tells me to go blank myself, <laughs> you know, when I have those conversations with him. But at least I'm having those yeah, conversations. I think I think you know he'll he'll look back and be appreciative of those. And and I know your dad is is obviously you know so was so proud of you and what you've 
you know, become and made of your life and, and really carrying on, you know, his passion for travel and learning. And, and obviously people know you for doing that on your iconic show, Bizarre Foods. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious though, you know, going back to that original pitch, you know, what was, what was that like and how did it evolve into the the show that we all oh, know and love? Oh, it was the worst. You'll <laughs> laugh. Did I not tell you this story no. when, we, when we met? So I had this idea uh, for a show called The Wandering Spoon. Okay. I mean, worst, worst <laughs> working title ever. I feel like you got to bring that back for something. <laughs> something, right? So uh, I had been collecting tape. I was doing live local news. I would save a thousand dollars, which was a, a lot of money. 25 years, still a lot of money, but you know, 25 years ago, 27, 23 years ago, pay a couple goofball friends. There was no iPhones or anything. You, you, you bought a little video camera for $300 at the, at the local Best Buy. And we would shoot tape and I, and I would start, I, I, started to collect tape at live local news, uh, the channel that I was working on. And I put together a reel and I showed this, what essentially was a talent reel, mm-hmm. right? Uh, just based on me. And then I had paper. We would build these decks. I mean, you, you didn't have laptops weren't capable of it at that time. <laughs> so we would actually like Xerox the art and cut it and glue it and make these folders. Like a science project. <laughs> yeah, they were super precious. Like, you know, my friend and I and and my uh, my ex-wife uh, sometimes would make these things. And, and, you know, so that when I went to New York, I could hand them out to folks. And it took me three years to find any television executive that would take a blind pitch with unknown talent based on nothing. Mm. And there was a young woman who had just been promoted from intern to whatever the lowest level job was at Food Network. Uh, And her name was Allison Page, uh, very famously helped build several different uh, networks for what is now the Discovery Group. And I I didn't know that she was, I was so happy I got to have a meeting with an executive. I didn't know that she didn't even have a cubicle. She had to borrow someone else's cubicle. But we met and I pitched her on this idea and she thought I was interesting and funny. And of course, it went absolutely nowhere. Today, <laughs> she is today she is running the Magnolia Network and is my is my boss, is your boss. today, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I love. But, you know, it, it was, you know, no one wanted to hear this idea. And finally, it was actually through pitching to Allison I decided I don't want to. There were so many shows on Food Network. I would just be lost. I would be put on Sunday morning at 6 a.m. and no one would see it. It would die. (laughs) And I decided I need to I need to be the food guy on a non food network. One of my mentors had taught me it's better to be the only than to be the best. Mm. And I've taken that advice to heart. I said, I'm going to be the only so I I lied my way into a meeting at Travel Channel. It, <laughs> I did I did not know. You talk about lying at the right time. I, I got this meeting with Pat Young, who at the time was the general manager of Travel Channel. He just taken it over. He had bought Tony Bourdain's contract essentially from Food Network. Tony had just completed a show on Food Network called A Cook's Tour, and he wasn't uh, a fit for there. And Pat wanted to 
air Cook's tour on Travel Channel while he worked to develop the show with Tony uh, that became No Reservations. Tony's show had just launched and was getting really great ratings. And Pat, it was confirmed for him that he wanted to build a, a network of immersive explorers. And so I go into the room and I pitch him on, I go around the world telling these really serious stories about culture through food, focusing on the conflict, the crisis, the need for all the things that I believe in now. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, that's great. That's six episodes of something on PBS that all your peers will, will applaud. You're new talent, so you probably won't win an award, but the content will be good enough. So you, you will probably think you should have. <laughs> and and then you're right back where you started. He says, but if you can figure out how to make that show 75 enter entertainment, 25% educational, I will put it on in 170 countries around the world because that's our reach. Wow. And I went back to my, I said, do I get a half hour of your time tomorrow to pitch you again? He said, sure. And I went back to my hotel room and my hook that I thought of was stories from the fringe that no one else has told about, not chicken breast, but more fermented whale spleen, right? <laughs> you know, more walrus, less chicken nugget. And so I went back in and I, I pitched it to him and he was in a room with like 12 people. I was on the top floor of Discovery's building in Bethesda at the time. And he handed me a laser pointer and said, tell me the first 32 episodes. And I almost had a heart attack and luck because I was unprepared for that completely. I knew the first three trips I wanted to take, but I didn't know them all. But I just started talking the way I'm talking to you now. And I just started like telling one story from every country. And I just kept going around the world with things that I had seen with my mom and dad. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been with my mother in Trinidad and Tobago and taken a dive for a giant conch and hauled them up and cleaned them and eaten them and what the locals did with them. And, you know, I had been with my father in the mountains of Italy with goat herders eating the Italian version of the Greek dish, cocorezzi, where you wrap all the organs in the intestine of a young animal that's never eaten grass, only eaten milk. And how delicate and tender those kidneys and livers and intestines were. And, uh, you know, Kazu Marzo, the, the, Kazu Marzo, the, the, the cheese that they let stay soft until the flies lay their eggs in it. And then they harden the air dry the shell, the, the outside so that the, the, when you open up the cheese, the maggots have been living inside of there forever, uh, eating and pooping. And that's why the cheese is so creamy and very illegal now, but very delicious. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, at one point I heard stop, stop. And I didn't realize I'd gone, I was up at like 41 episodes <laughs> and I turned around and they said, okay, we'll buy it. Now go find a production company that'll make it with you. Cause I, I was a person. Yeah. So I had to go find a production partner and I did. And we made the first six, they bought eight episodes. I think we had made, no, we had made all eight. We were in post-production on the last couple. The, the first one did well. The second one did like a tenth of a point better. The third one did a tenth of a point less. Mm. And there was just this agonizing groan in the production company in my mind because you want to see steady growth. 
to to get more. And I knew I had the faith of the network, but I was I was kind of upset. And the phone rang on a Wednesday afternoon, right after I had gotten the ratings from my agent. And uh, it was The Tonight Show. And the third episode, one of the bookers had seen, and it was me in Ecuador, and I had gone into a shaman's house, and he had lit me on fire, poured basically gasoline on me and lit me on fire, beat me with these branches of a poisonous shrub that caused these welts all over my body, broken eggs on me. He basically was performing what in in translation was an exorcism. Mm. And it was very funny. He kept spitting on me because his his bathing me in his own spit was going to exorcise these demons and help draw them out. And it's a very funny 60 seconds of television. And unlike (laughs) anything people had seen before, and the booker saw it and said, can you be in California in time for Friday night show? And I said, sure. And that Friday night I was on the tonight show and Jay and I hit it off and he loved the stories I told. And he said, would you come back? And I said, of course. (laughs) And the next week the ratings went through the roof. I'm sure. And Pat moved our show at the end of that little mini season. He bought 32 more episodes, moved me onto my own night on Tony and I were on the, our first, Tony's second season, my first season, we were both on Mondays. Then he put me on Tuesdays, and that was it. I mean, the the luck, had the Leno Bookers not seen the show, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking to each other. Mm. You, you have to have a lot of luck. You do. To expose the audience to a show fast enough. In other words, the, the audience has to find a program, Right. And so that's why most programmers are interested in episodes three, four, five. They want to see the number once it and see how is an audience finding it and how are they responding, right? Episode one could be the benefit of a lot of on-air programming just on the network that's going to air it, right? Mm -hmm. So again, just seconds and inches. I was, I was very, very lucky. And then when the audience found it, and and you know this as well as anyone, an odd, there are people who were, you know, smarter, better looking, funnier, you know, all the rest of that stuff that, than me. I'm a, I'm a pretty average guy. But the audience wants to tune in each week to see me do whatever. Yeah. And that is, I mean, if, if programmers could figure that out, there'd be a lot more, well, there'd be a lot less failures <laughs> <laughs> in terms of programming investment. Yeah. But they still can't. So there's there's an indescribable certain thing that people will tune into someone week after week and not someone else. And it's indefinable. Coming up next, Andrew tells us about family dinner on Magnolia Network. So stick around. The connection that you do form with that audience is is so invaluable. But as you mentioned, you know, they, the audience has to find it first in order to feel that connection. True. But I think that that's uh, why your new show on Magnolia Network is, is so interesting because you're continuing, you know, to tell these stories and to make these connections with people that you're featuring. It's you're basically visiting families across the country. You're exploring how the cultural, regional, historical facets of, of who we are inform what and how we eat. And you're, you're literally sitting down 
at these dinner tables with these with these families and and breaking bread with them and hearing their stories. And I saw in an interview that you said it, it you think it's the best show you've ever made. So I'm curious what what makes this show so special? I think what comes from the heart reaches the heart. I don't make it special. The 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 people we visit make it special. I wrote that line about that one sentence description of the show. Mm-hmm. And that's the 25% of intelligence that I want to put into anything. I'm making, an, I'm, I'm making the show as an entertainment. Yeah. Some people saw Bizarre Foods as a fat white guy who ran around the world and ate bugs. They have a tough, <laughs> they have a tough life. They come home at the end of the day, they pop a beer, they want to put their feet up on the couch and they want to laugh and they want to watch something with their kids. And they, they want something that, that gives them pleasure. And as the intellectual with, a, I mean, I do everything with a hidden agenda. My hidden agenda with Bizarre Foods was to teach people about patience, tolerance, and understanding in a world that wasn't having any, that was increasingly becoming more and more divided about our differences than our commonalities. And it was very intentional. And I was told, don't say that. <laughs> Just we'll, work we'll it in you subtly. <laughs> work it in and you'll be more effective to more people. Sure. And, and Pat was right. With family dinner, I never, my big family was taken away from me. I lost a big family with divorces and deaths and people moving away and addiction and alcoholism and just life. And I have been in, I have been seeking out a, another family to take me in for a meal forever. I mean, that's why I've, I, I, I try to explain to people everything that I've done in television for 20 years is about going to someone's house for dinner. <laughs> so when Magnolia came to me and said, we want to do, they, they actually came to me, they said, we want an intuitive content show. We want your production company to do a show. We love you, the look and feel of what you do. And we pitched them immediately on family dinner because we had done, I mean, literally first words out of my mouth were, it's called family dinner. The host goes around and visits with real families talking about their traditions, their lives, because that is something everyone on the couch can relate to. And they were like, fantastic. And we put some, uh, we hadn't even put casting people in front of them. We hadn't even given them an alternate, but we got a call from the network about 10 days after they had come here to our office to meet about this project. And they said, would you do it? And I said, well, Sure, but I didn't know we were talking about a show for me. And they said, well, we weren't, but you were talking about it so pa- you know, passionately. And with, you know, we started to think like we, we, we need someone like you to do it. And then we realized there's not a lot of people like you mm-hmm. who can just go into someone's home and, and l- let us experience them. And I, I it's the, I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to say, you know, how pleasurable and simple my role is. I mean, I I walk in and let the families tell their stories and everyone can relate to it. And the timing with COVID and with the cultural upheavals of our day, I think people really like seeing another family talk about how valuable it is to spend time with each other, that that's the that's the only way that we can solve our relationship issues, brother to sister, sister to sister, mother to child, grandmother to 
grandchild, whatever the combination is, aunt or uncle to niece or nephew and vice versa. Everyone can relate to that. So it's a very simple, simple idea, but it works pretty well. Yeah. I mean, it seems like these people also just feel comfortable and, and and ready to open up and share some, you know, emotional stories. I think back at some of my other conversations on this podcast, and we've talked about how, you know, food has this magical power almost of, you know, bringing people together. Why do you think that is? We swim in it. We, we have emerged, and I'll take you back 35,000 years when we stopped hunting and gathering and started living in collections of humanity. We told stories over campfires and we decorated cave walls with those stories. You know, 10,000 years later, we started recording them on papyrus. 10,000 years after that, we invented the printing press. You know, 400, 500 years after that, we invented radio. And, you know, 80 years after that, you know, television. Now look where we are. We carry around devices in our pockets that we can take pictures and transmit them to the other side of the world. We can look at live video. I mean, it's amazing the power of that device that's in our pockets. Mm-hmm. All we choose to do with those devices, it's all about telling our story. It's all about telling our story. So where do we gather and where do we tell our story the most? I'm a strong believer that I challenge anyone in the 80% of Americans that have a regular food life, because we have to remember who we're talking about here. 20% to 24% of Americans, 800 million people globally do not have a food life. But for the rest that do, life happens in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Everything happens in the kitchen. No one says, let's go down to the to the rec room and have a heart to heart. It just happens that people collect in kitchens. They share things over food. And it, it, it is embedded in our DNA. But historically, going back to all six of those cultural eras that I described, going back 35,000 years, when everybody is out doing the jobs that are necessary to keep the family groups moving and surviving millennia ago, ten thousands of years ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, the only time that we shared was when we broke bread. That's when we were together. And we still do that today. It's a very simple thing. There's three big cultural totems, right? Math, music, and food. If I take away your your mixtape that your boyfriend made for you in college, you're <laughs> going to be pretty pissed off at me. You love that mixtape, right? But it's not the end of the world. If you take away your, if I take your quadratic equation away from you, I, I honestly don't even think you care about your quadratic <laughs> equation. You would let me have that freely. You, you can have that. <laughs> but it, when you take away rice, when you take away bread, that is the stuff that revolutions are made of. That is the stuff that blood runs in the streets. We live and swim in food. People joke, I mean, it's been popular to say, oh, food is my love language. Like everyone has that as their little sign off on their email and stuff, at least in in our business, Uh right? I'm sure you hear it a hundred times a day. It's almost a cliche, Mm -hmm. except it's cliches are true sometimes for a reason. Food is the love language of humanity. Food is one of the major league antidepressants that we use. 
Food is how many people show each other that we love each other, that we respect each other. It, it requires no conversation. You, you've seen the end of Big Night probably a hundred times. And anyone listening to this podcast has probably seen the movie at least once. But Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub are two brothers. And the, the previous 24 hours does not go well for them. And Stanley Tucci gets up at the end of the movie and makes eggs and toast in silence for his brother. And they eat it at the movie ends. And not a word is spoken. And yet it's the most arguably more is communicated in that simple act about, about love, about conquering our fears, about survival, about our humanity in the last 90 seconds of that movie than in the previous two hours, filled with brilliant script writing. But you can't write anything that meets up with what happens when someone makes somebody else some scrambled eggs. Hmm. Oh wow! <laughs> I, I feel like I could I could sit here for hours and and listen to you you know tell stories and you never ask me over you never invite <laughs> me listen out. I have I mean, there's a standing standing invitation <laughs> next time you're in New York you are welcome to come to my apartment and I will I will cook you um, some food and we will we will share a meal together because I yeah I have I have so many questions that we did not get to so we're gonna have to do a part two at some point sorry I talked too much no. No, I, no, I please. Everyone, I talk too much. <laughs> do I apologize. not apologize. Do not apologize. I, I enjoyed it so immensely. And I, and I know that our listeners did as well. So we are going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question for you here on sure. Dark Obsessed. All right. Rapid fire questions. Favorite food movie? Uh, eat, drink, man, woman. Oh, favorite Minnesota dinner spot? Uh my house. <laughs> I love it. Rank your your top three fast food burgers. Culver's. Oh my god. Fat and I'm and I'm going literally with fast food. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, Culver's, Culver's, and Culver's. <laughs> okay. I, I I think all the others. I'm talking about strictly fast, fast food, fooders. Yeah. Do not work. And the most overrated hamburger in the world is at In-N-Out. <laughs> okay. You're going to, those are some fighting words for, for some of our, our West Coast people. Oh, I talk about it all the I time. Know, I, I love, know. It's my favorite conversation to have. I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> do, you, anyway. do you like that conversation better or if a hot dog is a sandwich? The, the former, because it's already settled jurisprudence. I settled it a long time ago. Bread plus meat equals sandwich. A hot dog is a sandwich, and you're allowed to have ketchup on it as long as you're under 12. <laughs> uh, that's settled law. That's settled law. Okay. Um, a Midwest food tradition one might find bizarre. Lutefisk, although it's dying, but we have so many Scandinavians mm. in the upper Midwest they brought with them a method of taking salt cod and instead of just rehydrating it and cooking it like the rest of the world does, they were going to soak it in lye until it turns to inedible poisonous fish jelly, <laughs> then rehydrate it for two days in changes of water to get the lye out, leaving the fish jelly behind. Then you steam it and drizzle it with melted butter. And there's not enough melted butter in the world to make that stuff taste good. Um, <laughs> it, it boggles, it boggles, especially being a globalist, because I've been in so many cultures where salt cod simply rehydrated in France, it makes brandade. 
in Italy, it's it's a bacalao that's fried in fingers at frit- at frateria, at uh, you know in the in the in the Latino world in in twenty six countries, uh, it's turned into a bacalao that's just incredible. You know, fried, broiled, baked, steamed. I mean, it's just salt cod is fantastic. And then the Scandinavians had to like do this weird thing to it. And then when I went to Scandinavia, I found out. It's more of a tradition in Minnesota than it is in all the Scandinavian countries combined. So, who knew? Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Favorite bite and least favorite bite on Bizarre Foods. Wow. I mean, 900 shows later. Oof. Least favorite bite that just comes to mind right away was a pizza in Isan province at a night market. My producer was trying to find a little button for our segment there, and he saw that someone was making pizza. It was like a frozen cracker bread that they put some of the worst Americanized-style emulsified sausages on. <laughs> the, the the horrors of that one dish. I mean, it's so funny because it closed the show out, our Isan province show. And uh, Northern Thailand is a place that, you can shoot 10 bizarre food shows there. Mm-hmm. It's really, there's a lot of nutsy food by Western standards. And when I took a bite of this thing, it's just visible on my face. I'm not, I'm chewing and not going to swallow. And I, I actually talked about it. it was far enough in the show it was midway, like six year, six or seven mm-hmm. out of 12. So that was horrible. And, and best, there were so many, so many incredible foods that no human being will ever I, I'm convinced no human being will ever eat a giant scallop again. <laughs> they, you know, they're the size they're bigger than basketballs. Wow. I'm talking about the meat inside. The shells are twice the Ooh. three, four times the size of basketballs. But in Samoa where they were uh, protected that the tsunami has wiped out a lot of them and the tribal people that had the right to fish them. Uh, they were allowed to take like two a year for special meals. We were there when they were harvesting one. Um, so stuff like that, where I know I'm the only, I'm, I'm one of the only people in the world to to ever eat 3,000 year old butter. I'm one of the only people who has eaten, uh, you know, honey truffles taken from the desert where they believe lightning strikes grow them uh, in the sook in Aleppo. Um, it's destroyed now. So, you know, it's those kinds of things. But when it comes down to something that everyone can go get in rural Cambodia, Vietnam and Thailand, they will deep fry baby ducklings and chicks um, and pour nuoc cham or a, a seasoned fish sauce condiment outside of Vietnam, where it would be called something else, onto something mm. and uh, onto those little fried birds. And I, I just. It's as close to Ortolan, which I ate in France once very illegally, but it's they are unbelievable. You take the beak and you eat them with this sauce. And I just talking about them makes my toes curl. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, our final question is is something that we ask everybody here on Food Network Obsessed. And as you can imagine, everybody's answer is completely different. So what would be on the menu for your perfect food day we're talking breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, if you want dessert. Um, and there's basically no rules. You can travel, time travel, you know, spend as much money as you want. Uh, there, there are no rules. Uh, it's just your day. We want to hear what, what, what you're eating throughout the day. Sure. Uh, 
it's very easy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> breakfast four guaranteed, but we think perhaps we think five generations of Zimmerns mm. have eaten at the at the Russ Faderman families, uh, Russ and daughters in New York. Okay. And I'm very good friends with the current generation of owners, but we have pictures of my grandmother there with with Nikki's grandfather. Love that. Oh my God. And we, we believe that my great grandfather, while very poor, would have stopped by there and the more saved up to have something there. We knew he lived two blocks away and worked in the neighborhood. So he had to walk by there all the time. He was poorer than poor could be, but I'd have to assume one day he would save up and buy a bagel there. Right. So that's five generations of our family. So my, my, uh, and I'm lucky that I, I get a chance sometimes to eat behind the counter, so to speak. So um, I I would start my day there at, at Russ and Daughters because I feel like a raindrop entering the river uh, when I'm sitting there. Um, uh, for lunch. But what are you getting I, there? What are you getting at Russ and Daughters for breakfast? Oh, I'm I'm getting a everything bagel, uh, lightly toasted, gas-based salmon, uh, double red onion. And, uh, yeah, that's my, and, and some white fish salad, a little bit of chopped liver on the side. I mean, I like a little smorgasbord there. <laughs> I'll, I'll overeat. Yep. Um, I believe in eating till you're tired, not till you're full. Um, <laughs> so I would do that. Uh, lunch, uh, would definitely, uh, I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say, take me to, take me to Chengdu and Yubo's restaurant, instead of dinner only, serves lunch. And I would eat my favorite food in one of my favorite food cities on planet Earth and eat the, the best, you know, 28 course tasting menu of Sichuan food available uh, on the planet. Um, and then uh, for dinner, I would want to be it. I would want it to be 1966. Okay. Um, uh, my grandmother is in her sixties, uh, and except I'm my age now and I make her the recipes that, um, that she taught me how to make when I was a little kid. Mm. And, uh, I never got to cook for her and she taught me, I mean, the stuff that I make at all of the, I'm Jewish, all of our holidays, some of the most popular ones on our website. I mean, there must be 40, 50,000 people that make her brisket now for, for Jewish holidays. I would love to make it for her mm. and show her that. I hate you. You're making me cry. I <laughs> swore I wouldn't cry. Um, but I would want to make her like all the classic foods that she, her roast chicken, her brisket, her matzo ball soup, all the, all, her chopped liver, all the stuff that she taught me that I've, Chefied up just enough so that I think it's maybe a little better than <laughs> what she was making um, in that tiny apartment where she would cook for 19 people in in a space that my my couch I'm sitting on in my office is bigger than that kitchen. I don't know how she did it, um, but I would want her to taste that that food and share it with her now that I appreciate what it meant to me. Yeah. No, I mean, that's really beautiful. And um, I think we we all, you know, long for those opportunities to to go back and and, and share a meal with uh, 
with loved ones that that we can't do that with anymore. So yeah, I think that's really beautiful. And uh, now you're making me cry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you're welcome. Yeah, Andrew, <laughs> thank you so much. This has been such a, a lovely conversation, and I, I I so appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I, I a pleasure to be invited, and thank you for telling the stories that you do and allowing for so many voices to be heard. I I enjoy your work immensely and getting to meet you a couple months ago in New York was a a highlight of this year for me and I will take you up. We will we will go break bread together at some point. Yes, we will. Thank you. Wow. Uh that was an incredible conversation. I could hear him talk about food and travel and and life really for hours on end. We're definitely going to have to do a part two at some point. Um, and it's so great to hear that he's not slowing down anytime soon either. You can watch Family Dinner on Magnolia Network Sundays at 8, 7 central. And you can stream the first two seasons now on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 